Okay, welcome everybody. Another episode of Junior Resource Investing. Here today with me is Brian Skanderbeg, CEO of GFG Resources. GFG Resources is a North American-focused precious metals exploration company with a strong portfolio of highly prospective district-scale gold projects in Tier 1 mining jurisdictions, and they are currently drilling on their gold arm project. Before I hand it over to Brian and have a chat with him, though, as always, you know, your standard disclaimer, not, in, not investment advice, entertainment purposes only, full notes in the YouTube notes below. But Brian, yeah, thank you for joining me. I hope your day is going well. How are you? Yeah, great day out here in Saskatoon, Matt. Uh, you know, really uh, excited to get on your uh, your program for this afternoon and uh, tell you about what's exciting with CFT and and uh, everything on our front. So yeah, very happy to be with you today. Yeah, I like it. Just uh, another Saskatchewan guy, so I don't have to worry about time zones here. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Right. I need that. So why don't we just, you know, no place to start but the beginning, I suppose. Very simple, you know, 30 second elevator pitch on GFG. How, you know, what do you tell people? Why is it compelling? Why should investors care about your story? Uh, 25 million market cap company uh, backed by some of the most savvy investors and, and companies in the gold space. Uh, really active with a large portfolio of projects in Timmins. Uh, we'll drill about 10,000 meters. Uh, we found mines before. We've operated mines. we got a strong team, great property, money in the bank, and, and good shareholders. Hmm. So, yeah, so that checklist starts to develop, right? I mean, for me, you know, when I when I came across your story and started doing my own research, you know, your history and, and management's history in general is a big part of this story for me, as it is with any investment choice of mine. Uh, you know, you with Claude Resources, do you care to discuss your own past and your own past successes? Yeah, look, I mean, myself, I'm an explorationist, I'm a geologist, and and like many geos, we've worked our way through a lot of different portions of our careers. And earlier time working in Red Lake with Gold Corp, I uh, worked in, in Sudbury with, with Inco and, and pre predecessors to Valley and their nickel operations. And, and those were earlier stage opportunities. I spent some time in Namibia and Tanzania, did a master's in South Africa. Those were all sort of earlier stages of my career. And my first management role was truly with Claude Resources, and it's why is I, I continue to call Saskatoon my base. Great city, uh, raising a family here, and and con- continued with GFT. But with Claude, a uh, really unique opportunity where you have this established producer mindset, Sask- Saskatchewan-focused single-asset company had been around for 30 years and, you know, had its own ups and downs through uh, what 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 is typically the challenge of a single asset producer depending on dependent on a single asset the cycle of metal price you know challenges in the labor side and in the end Claude was was quite marginal and and what our team did and I was the VP exploration at the time was we were successful at finding a, a an ore body called Santoy Gap and in the end Santoy Gap to me is is the best solely gold ore body in the province and it's a couple million ounces. It's a nine plus gram ore body. It's bulk mineable. And, and ultimately, it took a company from Claude, which was a producer and an established producer that um, I think it struggled really to get scale and momentum and most of all, margin. And we took this new ore body to production. Um, first drill hole to production was about four or five years, which is a very telescoped uh, development path. And and ultimately, when that award started hitting the mill and, and, and the cash flow on the balance sheet, what we did was transform a company that was basically break even or marginally profitable to something that had like a serious free cash flow yield, like 15, 20 percent free cash flow yield, at the corporate level. And, and ultimately, those drive re-rates in companies. And we were able to piggyback a new ore body, better ore body and put 
Claude in a better position. In it. And ultimately, it became an asset that was attractive to mid-tiers. And, and we had a, a number of inbounds at the corporate level once we put Claude um, into a profitable position. Um, I subsequently had moved through COO and CEO roles and uh, and was running the company at that point. Um, SSR put a very compelling bid in front of us. And, and in the end, it, it translated something that was from 10 cents a share. And if you ran the numbers these days, Claude shareholders received five or six bucks a share. Uh, as it translated all the way through the VSSR shareholdings, and we own, ended up with 31% of Emergeco at the time. Um, the asset's still doing exceptionally well. Our employees are all happy. I still have a lot of ownership and, and belief in the asset. Um, and it ultimately is a good thing. You find a quality ore body, you found like a new discovery. A uh, few new mines are found out there, but our team was successful at that, and we translated Claude into a different position. We've maintained a number of those individuals. Mark. Uh, Lapaz, business development VP, Anders Carlson, who was our exploration manager at Claude at the time, is now our VP exploration with GFG. Our CFO Rick Johnson and uh, three out of our four independent board members all go back to Claude. So what you can see is this is a team that had a good track record, um, successful in a number of aspects of of uh, the business, not just in finding an ore body, but in actually putting it into production translating it through, fixing, you know, a corporate balance sheet and then executing a strategy to unlock an immense value and get a re-rate. And another re-rate when we took some equity from somebody we felt was immensely undervalued and, and re-rated the merge go. Um, so these are all some things I've done in my past. GFG was set up essentially to keep this team together and uh, be based here in Saskatoon and then find the next vehicle that we wanted to run with. And uh, GFG, go for gold or, or gift for God, Depending on what your perceptive, perceptive of the day, perception of the day is, um, so that's a bit about my history, my background, particularly with Claude, something uh, myself and our team are quite proud of, and we we would certainly hope to be able to find the, that ore body number two in our careers and say we found another great ore body. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Lots for me to try to, to jump in there with. Excellent answer. I mean, for me, subjectively though, it is what part of big part of my own research is management, right? And and I think that the way that you articulated yourself there speaks to why I also attracted to GFG. You know, smart, shrewd, and deliberate management, right? You 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 make decisions that not in pursuit of you know fleeting share price response, but in in a in a fashion that is meant to pursue the business of exploration right and then we I, I want to talk about as we will later you know land acquisition and 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 and, and exploration decision making that i think kind of speaks to that as well um and, and and also respecting shareholder value and 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 yeah lots of reasons why i think that management in such a person it's such a it's such an industry of people i think that gfg that's one of your strengths here as you as you articulate um why don't we just transition you know uh maybe actually sorry one final question on that note maybe Try to explain to me lessons that you bring from Claude, right? I mean, this is a big thing in this, in this industry is knowing what it takes to find success, knowing what success looks like and how to repeat that, right? What experiences or lessons do you bring with you to, to inform your decision-making today from your experiences with Claude? Um, opportunities take the uh, sort of, uh, you find opportunities in unexpected areas. And, and often, you know, people may have perceived Claude as being, lacking in opportunity um, because of its history or because it, it never seemed to make any money. Um, or if it did, it had a couple of years of making profit and then was break even or losing money. And when you think about 
you know, a path of an individual or a path of the company, recognizing a place to unlock value is always about your starting point. And, you know, when I think about Claude, Claude had a reputation and it had a challenge and people would have perceived it not to have opportunity, but it had immense opportunity. You know, it needed the right team and it needed the right time and it needed the right thought, it needed the right capital, um, investment at all different levels, whether it's human or, or capital intensity in terms of equipment infrastructure. Um, so that was one of the things was um, opportunity takes the uh, take, takes odd forms at times. Um, a little more detailed um, experience, I would say, at an at a explorationist level is that, um, you know, fertile belts have unique characteristics that that translate to create ore bodies. And sometimes an explorationist needs to think about what the what their gut what their gut is telling them. And, and I'll take Santoy Gap as an example of a target where it was the most logical target in the entire camp. And, you know, this camp had been producing for 25 years and that target had been drilled twice and the results were marginal on that target. So here you're sitting as an explorationist saying, what do we want to invest our capital in into our portfolio of targets? And we had to go back and, and really we made that decision to say, we will go test that target a third time. And we need to be careful about what we're trying to answer. Um, but, you know, targets can evolve looking at things from a different search space. And as an explorationist, we think about search spaces. When I use the term, I just mean we're looking at the target different. And um, that led to um, a, a step change in the results from, you know, a one or a 10 hit rate at a marginal economic result to, uh, you know, one out of 10 on the second phase, but you actually got a little thicker hit and you got a better grade. And the third phase was 20 over 20. And the only difference was thinking about the target at a different elevation. So sometimes, you know, the most obvious targets, even if they're in a mine environment or, or a pure greenfield environment, you just need to really think about them in a different way. If you, as an explorationist, still see that as an extremely valuable and attractive target, um, I would say don't be afraid to go back and test it in a different way because for the most part, the architecture of these targets, the things that drive mines are things you can sort of think of and see. You're like, it's fluid flow, it's structures, it's rock chemistry, it's it's all these intrusion, intrusions that come in. It's all these parameters that make a target what it is. Um, and if they're all stacked up there right, maybe it's just thinking about the target in a different way. Um and then it's probably about people, right? So we all want to have a high quality team and we need to be uh, cognizant of having the best people on board. So, you know, getting GFG, bringing people across, even bringing some of the Ganders in. And, and it took us six years to eventually extract Anders and get back into his role of working with our team. But it's nice to keep that really competent team together. And uh, people are so key. Um, I'm super proud of the group with, with GFG and, and, uh, and the board as well. I think we work well together. And, and so those are some of the lessons I've learned about whether it's, you know, targets or, or infrastructure or people, um, you know, and even think about gold systems. Um, people ask me, well, why, why are you working in, in the Abitibi? Why aren't you working in Saskatchewan with GFG? You know, and, and I think about it, I'm like, well, if I showed you a map that's 100 kilometers across of the Abitibi or 200 and I say, there's 30 ore bodies there greater than a million ounces in that map. And if I showed you the best area in Saskatchewan, you'd have one. 
And it, the systems are, the density of the systems and the character of the systems are inherently at different scale. We found a great ore body in Saskatchewan, and I think there are great ore bodies out there, but exploration about probability. And to me, looking at what we were trying to do in Timmins led us to really focus on the Abitibi because of the character of the systems there and the infrastructure available. So those are some of the lessons I've learned, I guess, that I would take forward from Chloe to T2. Excellent. Yeah. And lots of departure points for me to, to that I would want to go with conversation. And a lot of them, I think, that are we'll, we'll bring up here. But I think just to, I, I just want to finish off maybe the more boilerplate sort of slide deck questions before we get into the meat and potatoes of, of, of where GFG finds itself today and in terms of its approach and where it is. Yeah. Um, but just so, yeah, very simple share structure, right? I mean, insiders, institution, retail, uh, who owns what percentage of your company? Yeah, look, I mean, we have about 200 million shares, though. Um, insiders have always had a, a relevant ownership. Um, you know, we would own about 6 or 7% of the company. And if you think of that, that's myself, that's Mark, that's Rick, that's our board members. Uh, I would be certainly the largest chunk of that. And and I've invested all the time in uh, our financings, all going back to when we were even private. And what you see is management sometimes ends up with all these penny shares and you're like, oh, they don't have any money in the game. Well, what I can tell you is my cost base on GFT is about 25 cents. Um, and the uh, the lowest price uh, offering I've done was probably in the last two financings. I don't have any seed uh, capital or, or uh, cheap, cheap stock from issuance, private rounds or anything like that, nor does any of our management. Um, so we've bought it all and, and it continued to be committed through the financing. So that's the insider piece of it is, is that there's still good, strong ownership. The management team and the board continue to participate in our financing, which I think is always a good sign. Um, when you think about it at the bigger capital level of our shareholders, and I break those into a couple different baskets, the corporate side, uh, our biggest singular shareholder is actually Alamos Gold. Almost is a mid-tier gold producer focused in the Abitibi, uh, also has some assets down in, in Mexico um, and would be certainly a, a very savvy, well-established, uh, seasoned mid-tier in the gold space. And, and they've owned uh, shares of our company and supported us in, in many of the last financings. And uh, they continue to own 9.9%. They don't have any uh, board representation, but we do engage with them on technical support and, and input as we would with uh, any of our, our shareholders that we thought we could we could garner some information or, or appreciated their insight from. So that's the corporate side of it. If we go to the private individual side, we have a, a, a pretty broad retail base um, that is quite scattered across North America. There is some chunky pieces of it. Uh, we have one shareholder in the US that's pushing up almost almost 99% of us as well. Private, private individual um, based in the Northern US He's bought all the shares on the market. Uh, he is a, a very much a contrarian investor. He did very well off Claude, um, and he certainly believes in us as a management team. He continues to support us in our in our uh, on the market purchases, and he did write a check in the last financing. Um, so the retail piece in the landscape is certainly a big uh, component to it. Then we go to like these uh, institutional side, and and I would say more high net worth. Uh, investors on that end of it, and not that this individual in the U.S. is an I know worth individual, but I kind of carve them in a different basket. Uh, the Lundines are, are big shareholders of us. Uh, the family trusts and and the accounts related to them in Geneva, so they've participated in four or five financings and and very good supporters. They would be at about the five percent level, 
And then we go into the sort of basket of uh, what I would say are traditional institutional investors. And whether it's a Gold 2000, whether it's a, uh, a Delbrook, whether it's a U.S. Global, um, McKenzie, these are all um, seasoned, long-term, resource-focused investors that are largely long-only funds. And uh, we've had a number of those participating in us over the years. Um, and I would say there's probably you know, a half dozen that are in this sort of three to 5% range of them. So if you took this as an aggregate, I've just probably talked about 50% of our shareholder base, which would be insiders, high net worth individuals in the US, high net worth, uh, more uh, traditional resource investors, and then the institutional landscape piece to it as well. Um, yeah, that would be a bit about our shareholder base. I think what I can say is we have some pretty savvy supporters that believe in us as a team. And uh, and that have pretty good track records as well. So we we take good pride in that, and we uh, do a lot to maintain those relationships, both at the corporate level and uh, and the and the high net worth and our biggest shareholders, very key and supportive individuals. And of course, I think a, a, a running theme for me the last couple of days of my conversations, and, and it's a, sometimes it's obvious, but how important the human element is, right? And so I guess for me, what you just explained is is how much your own shareholders trust not even necessarily an individual project but just you as a management team to find that project to turn into a to mine to turn into a mine or an, an economically advantageous outcome for investors um and i i'd want to talk about again i keep trying to get ahead of myself here i do want to talk about the history of your company because i find that to be a very interesting and and emblematic or, or perfect example of that that grind of uh, that is exploration but maybe before we talk about the past Let's talk about just the present right now, right? So it's 2023. This is your third season on Montclair and Goldarm, if I'm not incorrect. And you're just start nicely starting. You got some uh, a nice little assay that you dropped this morning for news. Um, this today being September the sixth. Yep. Your phase two of a ten thousand ish meter drill program. Where do you mind just kind of giving us a quick update? Where are you with phase two? What are you drilling? What have you got left? What's next? Yep. Yeah, look, we designed this year's budget 2023 with an allocation of, you know, plus or minus 10,000 meters into Timmins. And uh, phase one, we drilled around that sort of 3,500 mark. Phase two is in the sort of five to 6,000 meter mark. And that's going to kick off here in the in the short term. And short term, I mean, later this week or uh, early next week. So I, I feel pretty good about where we are. Montclair is an interesting uh, system in that, yes, we've been there two and a half years uh, I think we go back to October 2021 when we acquired mm -hmm. the asset. And, um, you know, we looked at it at the time and said, you know, here's an interesting system. It's in a great location from an infrastructure potential. We think it's been kind of uh, been off the mark in terms of uh, hasn't been well thought about or certainly well explored over, over the last several exploration cycles. And most of the work down there goes back to the 30s and the 40s and the 60s, certainly not by modern times. And the majority of it was very shallow drilling. So, we added that to the portfolio back in 2021. Uh, we've executed about, uh, you know, 15,000 meters of drilling on the project over the last two cycles of exploration. That's over the last kind of two two years, plus or minus. And uh, when we think about what we've done, I think we've shown a good track record of ultimately publishing economic hits at a reasonable depth, growing the system and growing the system on a local scale at the deposit. Uh, which typically involves growing it on strike or growing it on depth and uh, and building an understanding and a proper pipeline to um, contribute to what is the next phase of drill targets, which which ultimately aren't discoveries yet. And there may not be any economic kits in them yet, but they're concepts. 
and their concepts undercover, their concepts next to the highway, next to good infrastructure, and the ones that I don't think people have stepped out really to look at very uh, coherently. Um, so when we think about our portfolio in Timmins, the goal has always been to build a strong portfolio and a pipeline. And when I think about that and the team thinks about that, you've got your most advanced assets, uh, most advanced targets. That's where you're allocating most of your meterage. And as you filter down, I think it's really important as an explorationist to take 20, 30, 35, probably wouldn't push 40% of your meters and go test your concepts that are the next deposit to be found. And uh, it's not out of uh, non-belief in, in something like Montclair. It's really saying, we put these land positions together, we understand them, we target them, and we need a proper allocation of our drill meterage. So that's where we are in, in, in Timmins. We have 800 square kilometers of ground. Uh, I think it's next only to Newmont in terms of regional land holdings and the scale of them. And uh, there's lots of targets and even getting Anders on board and I'm sure we'll continue to flesh out the team further that uh, there's lots of hidden opportunity in 800 square kilometers of ground in a belt like the Abitibi. So I fully expect that we'll keep populating really quality targets and advancing them to be drill stage ready and uh, continuing to test Montclair and, and Gold Arm. And hopefully Montclair gets to a critical mass and, and becomes something that uh, we can publish a resource on and, and advance towards a, a deposit where we can see economics taking shape in it. And it's in an area of the Abitimi that's really attractive. And I think it's heating up in terms of the amount of work going on, the number of peers that are, are putting out good quality resource bases or good quality exploration results. And ultimately, this is why we think, you know, the eastern portion of Timmins and, and even greater Timmins is, is a great place to invest. And that's something you and I chatted on a, on a panel discussion a couple of weeks back and a lot of discussion around Timmins and all the obvious advantages it holds and ultimately creates such a low hurdle towards economic viability. Um, we can talk about that, but I think I'd rather, I, I want to maybe just return to your drill program here a bit, just to shed some more light on it, because I think it's a, you know, obviously obviously an important part of any explorer's story, um, even though we maybe don't give enough credit to all the above ground and iterative work that we that, that goes on prior to the drill core coming up. But do you mind us breaking down? You kind of already did a little bit, but do you mind? I mean, how much of this drill program is testing, you know, true wildcat discovery targets? How much of this is, as you kind of said, step out or, or down, you know, a long strike or at depth sort of extension work, step out work? And then how much of this, you know, is there infilling, as you would say, as I know that you have some historical yep. work to talk that we can touch on that later, but do you mind just kind of trying to break down your, your meterage a bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, we took a ballpark and said if we we're going to drill ten thousand meters this year, and and I'm I'm generally a seventy thirty guy, and by that mean I, I want to see seventy percent of the meters going into something that we would say is resource caliber uh, in terms of um, continuity and grade, and so we think about that and what that means for us at Montclair, and what I what I think that means is we would take about seventy percent of our meters and we'd allocate them at the deposit scale, and that might be infill or it might be extension. And I think both of those are really valid um, applications, depending on where the company's at. There are certainly some areas where we need to infill the deposit. And I would probably say we might have a couple thousand meters allocated towards holes like that. Um, then there's the next phase, which is kind of, you know, typically in the sort of uh, 50 to 150 meter step out depth or strike extension uh, scale testing. And you might have another 40, 50% of your meters going into that. So that may be four or 5,000 meters. So those two give us that 70% number. 
And if you're just talking about 10,000 meters, those are in terms of thousands of meters. And then you take the other 30% or 25% and, and things like Alto, things like the car porphyry, things like we want to step out there a kilometer and a half and, you know, test the strike extension, the same stratigraphy. And we want to test a target out there undercover, um, moving to the east of Montclair. And, and we might have 30% of our meters going into targets like that. And I think the logic to this weighting is that we want the best and the majority of our meters going into value creation. Value creation is, is you know, probably inherently different for many investors and individuals. To me, it's about putting um, dollars into resource growth. And um, to me, Montclair is something that we can get to a resource. We want to see a good chunk of our meters going into there. And we want to also ensure we can find the next one and build the pipeline across what is 30 kilometers of ground just within um, the gold arm and, and the greater gold arm block of properties. So that's a bit around allocation. Um, and it's also designed to say, look, we have uh, a necessity as an exploration company, A, to create value for our shareholders. Creating value for your shareholders requires momentum. Uh, momentum in this market and many capital markets means we need continuity of good strong results and and it's a good balanced way i think to keep um generating consistent news showing our shareholders we're building value not taking too much risk all at once too much risk all at once would be taking 80 percent of your allocation of drill meters and putting them into primary testing of first phase drill results um some management teams would operate that way that's not how our company chooses to allocate Certainly high risk, right? That uh, if you swing and you miss and you have to go cap and handle the market, things can get ugly in a hurry, right? In terms of yeah. managing the treasury. Absolutely. Um, so circling back, I mean, we, yeah, I touched and I, I don't know if we need to, I'm assuming people know, I mean, Abitibi, Timmins, it's, 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 it's advantages speak for itself, I think a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to give you some time if you want to, to touch on that. But for me, part of that, of course, is having that, that suite of knowledge from the ground above and below ground exploration that you can rely on, you know, that you aren't the first person. This is not true green fields. You have that knowledge base to work from. Um, can you just run through it? Just looking at my notes here, uh, this, the historical drilling and let's focus on, yeah, Goldarm and uh, Aljo and Montclair. I mean, if you can give us a generalized discussion about previous exploration in terms of meterage, but then maybe more important than just kind of that, that by rote explanation of what has happened, how are you utilizing that knowledge or, or how are you changing your approach? How are you altering the thesis that you're approaching your land packages with to, to further success or to find more success? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the legacy data, if I just talked drilling, was about 120 drill holes, plus minus 20,000 meters. And, and uh, so you could quick math tell you, see, maybe there are 150 mm. meters a hole. There are generally a lot of pretty short holes and a couple longer holes. Um, and the vast majority of that drilling was completed right on the Montclair deposit. Um, when we think about the bigger position of land and that historic work, I mean, this is classic uh, Kidman-Rowe assemblage. In, if, you, if you know Timmins geology, the same geology that we have on our property hosts Kid Creek VMS deposit. So there's also embedded within our portfolio um, opportunity that has um, kid-style VMS mineralization. And the reason I allude to this here is that it relates to how we use the pieces of historic data and how we target from that. So if we looked at just gold, 
Montclair. We have this good magnetic data we use. There's uh, um, obviously some some superficial sampling, although it's not a lot. And part of the reason we went to Gold Arm and and selected the properties we have in Timmins is because there's a paucity of outcrop. And um, generally, we're looking at 10, 20, 30 meters of till. Nothing that's 60, 70, 80 meters that becomes quite technically challenging, um, A, to either see through or B, to actually mine through if you get something relevant beneath it. Um, so it's kind of a sweet spot in terms of uh, the overburden cover where we think there's it's it, it's preserved enough endowment. Things can still be found underneath there at a shallow level. And so we think our chances are better uh, exploring in, in, in areas like this. So I like that about Penn. I like that about Montclair. And and when we look at the the regional data we use, this magnetic data, this till sampling data, um, we use that to target beneath cover quite regionally. That being said, it's pretty immature. If you took the drilling outside of Montclair, you know, a couple dozen holes over 30 kilometers is not a lot of drilling. And um, to me, when we looked at this land position, the scale of the structures that are um, trying, you know, encompassing and, and, and moving through the land position. These are big plumbing systems. Um, there's big deposits along these corridors, and it remains remarkably immature from an exploration point of view. So, yeah, there is data there. There's things we can use. Most of the data is focused at Montclair, so we capture all the drill holes. We, we capture that. We understand why people did what they do. And then we do our best to model our own thoughts to it and say, how can we grow Montclair into a sizable deposit? Um, in tandem with that, we're taking the regional philosophy, which is there's 30 kilometers of ground here. We know there's big structures in here. We know people haven't really looked in detail under this till cover. And uh, what do we need to add in terms of the data, data layers to properly explore? So we're still capturing data. Two years later, we're still pulling up pieces of the historic data on this 30 kilometers of belt that we have to capture and, and help that guide better targeting in the regional land position. And I would use an example of something like Balkan Bridge drilled some holes, you know, 15 kilometers to the east of Montclair in the 70s and 80s. Gold rich VMS style mineralization um, just off our property boundary. And we're still pulling together the data to target um, systems like that that have immense reward and value to be unlocked as well. Um, so, I mean, it's an exciting piece of ground, A, because the infrastructure location, um, but equally it's, it's endowment and, and deposit styles and, and scale that is around us where one of the biggest BMS deposits in the world is sits 30 kilometers along strike to the west of Montclair. And it's in the same volcanic stratigraphy in the same style of setting. And we're still building the targets and the data's um, work that we would want to effectively target BMS style mineralization, which takes a bit different basket of data than, than say, pure gold exploration does. So that's a bit about how we're using the legacy data, um, where we are right now, and then where we still need to go in terms of some of the regional targeting and and, and potential value unlock um, of having such a large land position and, and being able to target iteratively across it. Well, I think this actually is a good opportunity to, for me to dovetail into a conversation that you and I chatted about prior to coming on air, that to me, so 
you know, Montclair, that your current land package is not the one that you started with five, six years ago. That you that if you have been following the story of GFG, that you you've kind of gone through, you know, Rattlesnake Hills and then Penn and Dory, and and you you've you've come to a project and you've put your due diligence in. And then you, you, you've moved on. Right. And I think that, you know, sometimes you see from the retail perspective that there is a, maybe an overly emotional response or impatience or frustration where you see, Oh, that, that company is a flop. It's a failure. And, you know, I, I, I don't think this is just me putting a spin on things. I don't think this is me just, you know, like I say, manipulating things to sound good to me, that is evidence of a strong management team. Right. And, and I don't want to sit here and just kind of toot your horn, but to me that, that grind, unless you're extraordinarily lucky and you get, you know, like a bonanza discovery hole, on, you know, your first hole, which I mean, let me know if you ever find out that if that ever happens. Right. But that, 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 that process of selection exploration and then moving on, if it doesn't fit your model, I think is part of what again, draws me to you as a management team, um, maybe I would just ask as a, as a, as a recap or a synopsis of, of, of where you've come from. Do you just want to discuss previous projects that you've put time into? Maybe why you set them aside? Um, and then maybe, and then, well, I'll ask you this question afterwards, but maybe just so you can have your mind wrapped around it. I mean, how do you balance that, that fine line between like tenacity and not giving up after a couple of dusters, but then that flexibility to know, when it is time to move on. Right. But maybe first you just want to kind of run through projects that came before where you are and what, what caused you to move on with them. Sure. Um, portfolio turnover is just inherent to what we need to do as explorationists. And so if I just stay big picture, ultimately what we're trying to do is, is find that needle in the haystack. And we all understand the probability of game and is that it's, it's, it's a long odds, um, against us. So even if we're the most effective explorers and we understand everything to do and, and we're executing perfectly, we will still fail the majority of the time by far. And as a management team, you know, talking with some peers in the space and, and even some mentors that I would have had and continue to have, it's like, you cannot be afraid to pivot if the asset's right. And you cannot be afraid to pivot if you're not seeing what you want to see in the system. Um, in terms of a generating uh, a path that ultimately builds value. So when we think about our portfolio uh, and, and, and stages that the company has gone through, uh, GFT started off with Rattlesnake Hills and, and this asset in the U.S. is a full alkaline gold district. It's 135 square kilometer land position. And uh, there's 100,000 100, meters of drilling in this deposit there, two deposits. Um, so it's really strong components to that system. That being said, you know, it's a seasonality of an exploration game where you can explore that asset kind of five, six months of the year. It's in the U.S. Um, so you don't have access to flow through everything you raise is hard dollar side. It is in Wyoming where, yeah, it's a great extractive industry driven state. That being said, there's no or limited existing gold infrastructure present there. Um, so the asset has some good things going for it, and it still has relevant greenfield potential, and you can still grow the deposits. But what we had to ask ourselves is, can GFG float uh, successfully to generate value as a single asset company with Rattlesnake Hills? And we got to the conclusion was that we couldn't. And it was a combination of rationale about perception of the asset, what it took to unlock the value, and, and what it was going to mean in terms of generating value for our shareholders. And when we thought about that, 
ultimately our history with Claude showed us um, and gave us a lot of experience in the Abitibi because with Claude, we did look at a lot of the systems in the Abitibi as peers and we almost merged with a number of them. And so understanding that, we made that pivot back to Penn and Dory and Penn and Dory was added in to say, let's start this portfolio in Timmins. And that decision was a very critical one for GFG. And when we looked at that and before we acquired uh, Rapier, the company, or did the probe, the, the deals with Probe and Alamos and several other uh, um, smaller groups and even a Cisco, we looked across the Abitibi and we were in a number of these processes looking at opportunities. And ultimately what we found with Timmins was it had the most uh, attractive entry point of any of the major um, centers of infrastructure in the Abitibi. And by that, I mean, you could get a quality piece of ground at a, at a cost that was palpable for a company like GFG, and you could get a foothold there and continue to build on. So the Pandora blocks, yes, they were greenfield and they were early stage. And we went there and we uh, started with those properties. We explored them and we still have them in our portfolio. It was always part of a vision to say, let's be Abitibi focused. We very much like the entry point into Timmins and we will continue this portfolio building process, which naturally evolves upscale in terms of the stage of development. So even when we went to the Abitibi, you know, three years, four or five years ago and, and bought Penn and, and uh, Dore, it was with an idea to say, there's going to be other processes. This is a consolidation vision that we had for this area. And we will continue to keep looking. And Montclair is the second step of that to say, all right, we've got another advanced asset. Um, have we given up on Penn and Dory yet? Nope, not at all. It's just a step in portfolio building. Um, and, you know, Rattlesnake, yes, there was a hard pivot where you have to make a choice about whether you're, and how you're going to advance an asset. As it relates to the continued portfolio build in, in Timmins, I think that's a natural progression that continues to add ground. So this concept of pivoting and, and what we like is, is such a complex process of, of, of that you have to trust management on. And if, if management's not seeing the results they like to see and want to see, um, they need to pivot. And as a shareholder, if you don't believe in management, then you shouldn't be a shareholder. And um, so this, this concept of adding another portfolio asset, if you understand the logic and you find management talking credibly, um, about the vision and the strategy and why they do what they do, um, then I think those are the types of questions you should be asking management when they're undertaking some strategic pivots, which many exploration companies do. And if you look through any, many of our peers, the vast majority of successes are not first assets or even first kick in the can. They require the pivot. They require the change. And that's just a function of the risk uh, portion, the risk uh, probability that we play in. And so this will be a subjective conversation. And I'll try to try to phrase it in a way that it allows you to discuss it more concretely. But that 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 persistence versus flexibility where, you know, don't throw in the towel too quickly versus, you know, don't, I almost relate it back to, you know, for investors, don't fall in love with a stock geologists don't fall in love with a, with a resource or don't fall in love with a land claim rate. What is it just a gut instinct? Is it data driven? I mean, obviously both maybe a little bit, but can you just try to try to provide some context or color on, on that process of deciding when it is time to kind of pull up stakes and try on, try somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, an example is, is, uh, 
is, is what we have for a vision at Goldarm. And when we would have acquired this block of ground, we look at it and say, okay, there's there's this dual strategy of how we're exploring this land position and, and it's deposit scale focused and it's greenfield. And both of those are ongoing in tandem. So when I think about how we are exploring it and what would cause us to review or, or change an alternative, it's like, is the deposit not heading in a direction we want from a critical path? Is it not getting the right scale? Is it not showing the right continuity? Is it not showing some sort of um, economic path to where you can say, yeah, this stuff belongs in a mill and it belongs in a mill because it's this size, this grade, this tonnage and these metallurgical characteristics. So that's the one side of the strategy. The second side of it is, is the area and the tenement conducive to how we're approaching our exploration philosophy? And, and this is an interesting one in the sense that it's extremely difficult to explore under, you know, greater than 50 meters of till. A, it gets expensive. B, your, 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 your sort of accuracy really drops off. Your geophysical techniques are less applicable as you're looking through that depth of cover. So if we're not seeing um, the character and the quality of regional targets come out of our regional targeting work at an early stage, then we have to ask ourselves, is it just not there or is it too small or are techniques, explanation techniques not working very well? So I would look for both of those um, questions to be answered in, in terms of how we approach our philosophy and you know, um, you know, how we review our targets and even something in pen where we're like, there's still lots of really good drill targets valid at pen, but we just have to do it in a balanced approach where we might have some high quality targets at pen that we rightfully should be weighing and are weighing versus drilling a target on Goldar. Um, and that's the great thing about building a portfolio and getting a mature portfolio and getting it to the level where you actually understand each of these targets and have all the data layers you want is you can cycle back and review some of those targets. And, and I think Penn's a good example. And even Dory, where we still have more work to do there. Um, we just have to do it in a methodical and, and sort of um, um, stepwise approach. Um, so those are kind of the things I look for in the philosophy is on the regional side at Golder. Which I think we touched on this, but again, it goes back to that, the, the optionality it provides is such a huge hedge for risk management, right? That, 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 like you say, a single, a one, a one trick pony, if the, you know, if I'm going to butcher an analogy here, but if one trick pony's legs break, then there's no trick left, right? So as a, as an exploration company, multiple kicks of the can, even like you say, from a practical perspective of staying in the news cycle, right? If you can get, can get a little bit of news flow going on multiple projects. Um, why don't we circle back here though? Rattlesnake Hills is a, is a very interesting one for me. I mean, I, I always, you always cheer for companies doing new things, right? It revitalizes the industry. It provides new technology, new knowledge. And so Group 11 is trying this, this ISR in-situ recovery, which, uh, you know, normal for you, you for uranium, less normal for gold. Can you, is there any updates on there that you can provide for us? Yeah, look, I mean, the last um, public news that we put out on Rattlesnake from Group 11 was, was related to some of the preliminary metallurgical work that was completed in 2022. And ultimately, that looked quite positive in the sense that what they showed was they could get, you know, 60, 70 percent of the gold out of uh, out of a rock without crushing it using no cyanide. And that was extremely encouraging uh, from a preliminary stage. Um, you know, that being said, you know, they struggled to be able to raise some capital. Um, they are owned by and partially by environmentals, one of the parents that's gone through some management changes. 
So ultimately, we haven't really gained the traction we would have hoped in, in Group 11 would have hoped at the asset level of being able to push forward. Um, you know, I'm optimistic we can find a path. If we don't, uh, it's a conventional option agreement. If they don't spend dollars and if they don't um, commit to a certain amount of work thresholds, then we would have the asset come back to us. So at this stage, um, Group 11 has continued to, to look for financing sources as we have some more uh, concrete or more definitive news that we can talk about publicly, we will. And, um, you know, I, I would hope to be in a position in the next several uh, several weeks to months to provide an update back to the market on where we're going with Rattlesnake Hills. Sure. So, I, I mean, I want to, we're nearing the end of this. We will discuss a little bit more in terms of your drill campaign. I mean, you have a couple of nice assays, but I'll, I'll sidestep that, even though, I mean, they're always nice to talk about. But do you just want to talk about, you mentioned the Lundines are in, Alamos is in, you know, as, as a retail investor, obviously there is affirmation when you see names like that involved, right? Uh, can you just discuss, maybe for Alamos, uh, what was their motivation? What did they enter for? Was it Montclair? Was it just the relationship that they had with you over the course of several years? Um, yeah, we'll start there. I'll stop that. How did they, why did they enter and what's your relationship with them? Now, look, I mean, GFG's uh, being a consolidator and explorer, we're very cognizant of um, building our corporate relations. And, and I can tell you that there's probably not a mid-tier major out there that we don't have a reasonably strong relationship with. We're very open. We tell them what we're doing. Um, we're we're not like in our box working secretively about what we're doing. And and um, Alamos is a group that came into us as a shareholder base three or four years ago. And ironically, they came in for uh, some really encouraging drill results that we saw out of Penn. And there was a target called Nibiolonif that we tested. We saw some exceptionally high grade hits. Um, this is back probably four or five years ago and three, four years ago. And, and Alamos came in to our share registry at the time and participated in a financing, believing that their technical group has always liked aspects of the Swayze Greenstone belt for various technical reasons. And here we had a company like GFG that had gone into the Swayze, had applied the methodology that was consistent with what their technical group would have thought was appropriate and had made a relevant high grade, you know, hit in terms of some new exploration results. So that led them into us. In the end, we couldn't, show continuity at that target. So we had a great hit, but it didn't go anywhere. And so, you know, the next phase drilling showed that, you know, that specific target would have been deprioritized. And um, and Alamo sat out for a financing round and they didn't participate in our next one. We always kept them informed and were very uh, open with them about the, the strategy. And even when we brought Goldarm and Montclair into the property, we were very open with them about the rationale. And, and they wanted to see, okay, well, what's GFG doing in terms of generating results? And uh, and we subsequently went out there and we drilled things like 16 grams over 10 meters, 5 grams over 25 meters, 8 over 8. So we were showing economic hits at a shallow depth, and, and that was encouraging enough for Alamos to come back top themselves back up to 9.9 in their registry and participate in the financing. So I think with them, we find a group that is um, leveraged to the jurisdiction and, and believes in the uh, endowment to the belt and the potential for new discovery there. And, and obviously they need to be leaving us as an explorer and the team to want to be a shareholder. So that's a bit of history of, of why Alamos is engaged. 
and uh, they continue to be good, strong supporters. As it relates to, you know, uh, groups like the Lundin, I think these are savvy, exceptionally savvy, long-term investors. And if you look at the wins that the family has had over the years, it is long-term investing in people, the right groups of people with the right track work and working in belts that are productive and sticking to it. And they are amongst, to me, the best shareholders to find, A, because they're technically competent, but B, they get the business in terms of risk. They're not buying your equity for the next drill hole. They are and they aren't. They're buying it for the next 100 drill holes, knowing that the belt and, uh, is there to be unlocked, and they're buying the people and investing the people to explore in that belt. Um, so I, I think they're extremely uh, supportive shareholders and they continue to participate in our financings and the relationships are very positive with uh, with that group. Maybe a quick, just one quick follow-up that I don't want to belabor this, just we're nearing the end here, but <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of uh, informational or technolo- technological expertise, do they provide any to you or, or are they hands-off? Uh, Lundin would be a little more hands-off um, and, and the dialogue is more at a higher level at the uh, Corporate and, and share registry level, um, whereas groups like like Alamos, we certainly will will tap them and have technical meetings and reviews and update them on our process, and and so they would be uh, definitely more involved at the technical level. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, just a couple of questions left here, Brian. I mean, you, you know, I think that sometimes retail does a disservice to itself by focusing too much on the drill. Uh, obviously, there's a huge aspect to it, and you know that's where companies are made or, or, or broken sometimes. But obviously, there's a lot leading up to it that doesn't probably get enough credit. But I mean, focusing on assays, you do have some good hits, right? I mean, you got 70 meters of 1.6 grams. Mm-hmm. I think it was 10 meters of 9 grams, something like that, or 9, or nine meters of 10 grams, somewhere in there. So, I mean, you, you are kind of probing the edges of something that could be like a very substantial resource if you can can locate it and start targeting and, and hitting it i guess right uh do you want to um just to transition i guess what are, what do we have to look forward to how many meters then if we're talking about drilling how many meters are still in the lab how many meters are left to be drilled i mean what's maybe what's the what's the news flow you know over the next six to twelve months what's the news flow maybe that uh, investors can look forward to from gfg yeah, look, in terms of our plan for the remainder of uh, H2 of 2023, uh, we're going to drill five or 6,000 meters. And, you know, for us, if we're drilling 300, 250 meter long holes, that's kind of on the order of 20, 25 holes. And um, so I think that that provides us a good uh, runway in terms of distribution and use. We don't currently have any assays at the uh, at the lab, what we published this morning was really our last batch of the um, Q2 drilling. And those worked through, we got them finally all back and we were in a position to put out the last five holes of that drill program. What the uh, what the market can look forward to is is some some larger scale step outs and 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 understanding the system at Montclair proper. So when we think about Montclair, our deepest drill holes are around a 300 meter mark and vertically and then we've chased this thing back up to surface and we've defined it over about half a kilometer and we have some drilling outside of the path that still showed the system still working so we're going to work on that um but what we want to be able to do is say you know step down 100 150 meters on uh on montclair essential and say does our lower football zone actually have some traction to generate those economic hits and show you know step change and scale to get to relevance of uh, of resource base. 
So that's what I, I uh, talked to Anders a fair bit about is, is this next stage of drill program. Yeah, we need to look at, you know, depth continuity here. We need to pull this thing up to surface. Um, if there's some gaps in the area, there's probably some infill that's needed as well. Um, so I think there's a pretty good probability that the program we're putting together shows, um, you know, very relevant system scale growth. And uh, that's what I'm optimistic to deliver on over the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months. If we can execute 5,000 meters here at Montclair in H2, and we can step out in Q1 and put another whatever, three, 4,000 meters in. Let's just think over the next 12 months what we'd like to see. Uh, we'd like to see another 10 plus thousand meters go into the system and say, I think we can get this thing to critical mass here. Um, you know, is it a million ounces at five grams? Is it a million ounces of, you know, that's pitable at two grams? Well, those are the variables we're still working through in terms of some of our models and, and what the system looks like. Um, so the catalysts to me are um, step out drilling at Montclair. And uh, that will probably be a, or will be a largely H2 focused thing. Then we think about some of our more regional targets. You know, those are often more uh, well tested in frozen conditions and, and wintertime drilling, which would be Q1 of next year. So those are the two things we try to balance in terms of pushing on the exploration side. Um, obviously, we'd love to get some clarity on the strategic path for Rattlesnake. Um, I think investors should always trust management to say, what's the right way to advance Ben and Dory? Are there targets you might want to step back out at and still have another look at? And we are doing that. We are reviewing those, uh, bringing another set of eyes on board at uh, the VP level with Anders Carlson um, brings us another review of this target pipeline. And as we talked about off the start, it was like sometimes a target needs a different set of eyes. It needs to be looked at a different way or a different search space. And uh, that often is, is uh, advanced by changes in personnel. We are inherently humans and sometimes get too stuck in one model. And uh, often gold doesn't follow the model we think. So, but it is where it is. So if you're seeing all the hallmarks of a really interesting target, um, maybe you just got to change your model. Interesting. Yeah. Lots, lots to talk about here. Lots more than I would like to talk about. I mean, I think that the, I'd love to delve more into your, the philosophy and rationale behind your, your exploration model, but I think we've probably come to the end of this conversation uh, just for the sake of time. Brian, thoughts, parting thoughts or final words to you? Yeah, no, look, really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little more detail on GFG. I find too often we get um, in an investor pitch that's like 15 minutes, bang, bang, we got to knock this thing out. And the reality of is what we are doing is is difficult to convey over that time frame. Um, so I, I'm thankful today that you know we can talk about you know strategy and and pivots and longer term wisdom that that ultimately these are the things that drive exploration and uh, drive the successes in the business. And you may well have you know the first drill hole, a great discovery, but that's almost always not the case. Um, so I'm happy to be able to just shed a little light on the history of GFG, the evolution of our portfolio, the strategic thinking of the Madison team, and what really to be excited about going in for the next six to 12 months. 
Perfect. No, thank you, Brian. I'm I'm glad and I'm thankful that you feel maybe you had some time. Your your ideas had some elbow room, I guess, proverbially, right? Uh, if you're listening in, thank you very much. GFG Resources is the name of the company. You can go to GFG Resources, just how it sounds, .com for more information. Great, strong website. Brian, thank you for your time, articulate conversation. I enjoyed your thoughts. Uh, thanks, yeah, thanks for coming on my show. Yep. Thanks very much, Matt, and all the best to everybody. Great. Have a good day.